Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace and plead with you to open the eyes of our heart that we may see wonderful things in your word. We pray that you manifest the power of your word. Show us the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Show us even the depravity of our hearts in the light of the grace that you have manifested. Lord, we need your grace. We need your help. We are dealing with eternal things, not with temporal things. We are dealing with eternal souls and not with temporal souls. So we pray that you please to be with us this morning. For apart from the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, what we listen will go in vain. What we listen will not be enlightened. What we listen will not end in transformation of our hearts. So we pray that you please to bless us with the convicting, penetrating, enlightening, life-changing ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you forgive us our sins, cleanse us by the blood of the Lamb, shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And speak to our hearts this morning. Keep our minds and hearts devoted to your word. And may we, as Isaiah 66 two says, may we be the people who tremble at your word and not take your word for granted. Have mercy on us, help us and guide us. We commit ourselves to you. In the name of our beloved Savior Jesus Christ, we offer this prayer. Amen. Amen. As we keep listening to the word, and I encourage you to keep uh, uh, looking into the scripture because that will really help us to understand what we are learning. This is the second part of the message that we have listened last Sunday. In the second chapter, I have uh, shared with you one important factor from Hebrews chapter 2 from verses 5 through 8. I mentioned an important factor here that Jesus in his humanity became a little while lower than the angels. And we have spent time looking at the grandeur of man and at the same time how man fell into sin and how Jesus became a little lower than the angels in his humanity. And one thing we need to understand as we keep reading this uh, Hebrews chapter 2 is that the reason Christ became a human is for a very special purpose. And that is what we see in the verse 9 in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 which brings me to the second factor of this message which is Christ suffered death to taste death for us. Christ Suffered death to taste death for us. Shall we all read this uh, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 together? But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What is interesting here is that if you look into the first chapter, the Lord Jesus was called the Son of God. And that is the title that was used. And in the second chapter, we see that the name Jesus was used for the first time in the entire epistle in chapter 2. And it says here that the name Jesus, and also before that, we only see the name Propitiation mentioned, but here we see that the name also, the, the, the title death has also been given where Jesus died for everyone. And Christ became a little lower than the angels and he gives a reason here because we see that the recipients of this letter undervalued the person Jesus Christ because of his humanity. And in his humanity he became little lower than the angels. And then it gives a reason why the Lord Jesus had to become little lower than the angels. It is to face death physically. And that is the argument that we see here. And he not only says that 
Christ was, Christ became human and Christ died, he also says that he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And some people may be thinking about Jesus already had the glory, right? Why he was glorified. And when the Bible says that he was crowned with glory and honor, there are two things that we need to understand. One is that he took the glorious position so that by sharing in the humanity of man, man may share in the glory of God. And I will share with you what do I mean glory. But here... That is what we need to understand. And also, when Bible speaks about Christ being crowned with glory and honor, it is in his incarnation. It is the incarnational glory that the Bible speaks about. The same thing we see, right? When we read uh, Philippians chapter 2, that because of his death, he was glorified. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and the Father made his name above every other name. And what is very interesting also when we read this verse 9 is that the scripture says that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The word taste here, generally when we go to some restaurants and when we say that I want to taste it, we mean generally by sample. But that is not the word here is used in the context of sample. When the word taste here is used, it means he fully partook in death. When the Bible says that he tasted death, it means that he fully partook in death. He really died and he shared the pain of humanity in that matter. And the reason he died is the Bible says that not for himself. He didn't die for himself. He didn't die because he committed a crime, although that was the accusation the Romans and the Jews put on him. But he intentionally died on the cross, not because Romans decided, not because the Jewish religious leaders decided. He intentionally died, the Bible says, for everyone. For others he died, not for himself, for you and me. And the interesting thing also the Bible says here is that he died by the grace of God. Observe the scripture when it says here, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What does it mean by the grace of God? He died. He tasted death. It means that God provided him the strength required for him to endure the pain on the cross and lay his life on the cross. Now, the question here is that, uh, maybe I think I need to show you a scripture. One of the ways that Christ was really strengthened in order to face death on the cross, we see that in Luke chapter 22 from verses 42 to 43. Luke 22, 42 to 43. It says, Dear Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And immediately see when the Lord Jesus was really going through excruciating agony, emotional agony to face the physical pain. Immediately when he surrendered himself to the will of the Father, the Bible tells here, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Now we need to understand that although Christ was God in flesh, he was humanly weak. To die on the cross and he needed the strength and the grace of God to face the wrath and the judgment of God upon him on the cross which he paid for sinners. My question is that if Christ required God's grace to suffer, how much more do we need the grace of God to suffer? Christ being God, man, required the grace of God. He pleaded with God telling that, Lord, this is too difficult for me to bear. And he sought the strength of the Lord. He sought the grace of God. And because of that, God enabled him. How many of us, when we go through suffering, admit our weakness? That, Lord, in my weakness, I cannot take it. It is difficult for me to bear this pain. It is excruciating or agonizing for me to go through this agony. Lord, I need your grace. I need your mercy. 
Many of us see that Christ had the victory on the cross. But I tell you that before he had victory on the cross, he had victory in the garden of Gethsemane. Because it's there he confessed, it is there he surrendered, it is there he was strengthened on his knees. And my dear brothers and sisters, do not think that life on earth as it is hard and Christian life has many challenges. You can face your struggles by your own strength. No. Instead of running on the feet here and there, we need to fall on our feet and confess it. Lord, have mercy on me, have grace upon me, enable me. Pain is very important and pain is a blessing because it draws us to the feet of the Lord. But some people go away from the Lord because they don't wrestle on their knees and seek God's grace to strengthen them. But here we see our beloved Savior, how by the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. But why did he taste death for everyone? The following scripture goes ahead and gives the explanation. And that brings to the third factor of this message which is Christ suffered death to bring us to glory. Christ suffered death to bring us to glory. Let us all read Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. You know how it begins? It begins here saying that in verse 10, For it was fitting that he, which speaks about God. And it speaks about one of the few scriptures in the Bible, which speaks about the source and the purpose of all human and earthly existence. You see how it describes over here. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist you see here when it says the bible for whom it says the purpose the reason why the animals on the earth are existing the reason why the birds in the air are existing the reason why the creatures in the sea are existing the reason why sun is existing why moons are existing why stars are existing and main reason why you and i are existing what is the purpose of your existence? The Bible says that for him. And I am telling you the more you know the purpose of life that I am existing for him. Not for myself. Not for my job. Not for my career. Not for my family. Not for my pleasures. But for him who made me. The joyful, satisfying, glorious Beautiful our life will be. And that is what the Bible speaks about here that for whom and also by whom he is a source why everything is existing. The whole creation is existing because of this. This is one of the verses that we should also keep in mind along with Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 which speaks about that all things were made by him and for him. In that Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. It speaks about God the son. That Christ made all things. And it is existing for himself. But here if you see. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10. It speaks about God the father. Now this is one of the greatest evidences of the deity of Christ. That Christ is equal to the father. Because everything is existing only by God. And for God. And if everything existing by Christ, for Christ, Christ is no ordinary person, but God in flesh. And this is the meaning and the purpose of life that it speaks about. And then he goes further and says that Christ tasted death to bring his people to glory. Now what is the glory here? When we think about glory, we only think about the glory of God, which is true. But the Bible here says that he died so that he can bring everyone to glory. Bring many of his sons and daughters to glory. If you want to understand what glory is, we need to be pondering upon the passage that I shared with you the last Sunday. From verses 5 through 8. What do we see? We see that man was crowned with glory and honor 
and God made him into his own image and that God has given him dominion over all the creation. We see that in Psalm 8, 5 to 6 and we see that mentioning in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 7. When we look back to the Old Testament, particularly starting from Genesis, we see that man had an intimate relationship with God. Today we don't have the intimate relationship that Adam enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. And that was a glorious position. And we see also that man had dominion over the whole creation. Dominion over the seas, dominion over the sky, dominion over the entire creation that God had given to man. And we also seen that man due to sin has lost his intimacy with God. And at the same time the creation was cursed. He lost the glorious position that man had. So what does it mean when the Bible says that in bringing many sons to glory? What does it mean? It means that Christ died to bring many sons and daughters again back to intimate relationship with God, which is reconciliation with God, and at the same time to reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earths. It is to bring us back to that dominion. People don't live a cheap kind of life, lower standard of life that we see in the world. All that they think about is how to eat, how to drink, how to wear, where to settle, how to have a good career. And that's a worldly, narrow, carnal understanding that even Christians are having. And that is all they are worried about. What a cheapest, lowest standard of life that people live. When the Bible gives us the biggest and grand picture of why you are existing, which the world doesn't know. That God has made us for his glory. God is the reason why you are existing. And he died on the cross so that he can bring us to glory. And this glory, people, is not the earthly glory. It is not the comforts and the glory of this world. And I'm telling you that the glory and the comforts of this world is passing away. We see that in 1 John chapter 2 verse 17 where John says that the world and his desires are passing away. But the glory that God wants to give us is unfading, unquenchable, never ending, eternal glory. And that is the great hope that we have in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ which we will be having fully in the new heavens and the new earths. What is interesting that we find here is that what was lost in Adam was regained in the Lord Jesus Christ. What was lost in Adam was regained in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it says here that many sons and daughters to his glory. You need to understand sons doesn't mean that there are no daughters over here. So when it says many sons and daughters to glory, it means the children of God, not the creation in the world, which means that only those who repent of their sins and believe in the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, only they will see the glory. The rest of the creation, the rest of the human beings will never be able to see this glory because they have not repented and believed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm telling you, if there is anyone here don't think that you will just go into this glory without you reconciling with God, without you repenting of your sins, without you trusting in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from that, there is no entrance into this glory that we see here. And when we see that, you know, when it speaks about many sons and daughters, it speaks about the family of God. It speaks about the children of God, the community of God. What I would like you to also understand is that it speaks about Christ died for building his community. And it is the community that will be reigning in glory, not just individuals. Not just individuals. If you are only individualistic, not thinking about the community, it's all about my life, my comforts and all, I think you are misunderstanding what Christ has done for us on the cross and you are also misunderstanding what eternal community of God is in the new heavens and the new earth. And what we only begin here as a church is a glimpse 
or what we will be enjoying eternally. I love what Peter O'Brien, a very good commentator, makes a comment here. He says here that God's fitting action of perfecting the Son through suffering is closely tied in with this forming of a community of many sons and daughters. In other words, he's telling that, to put it very simply, it's already simple, but he's telling that the reason why God sent him is so that he can form a community for himself. And that's the reason we need to be community oriented. Now, when we look at this, when you look at many sons to glory, think about what it means again in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3, which we have looked in the past. How do we neglect such a great salvation? Why do you want to neglect this great salvation? What does it mean? Why do you want to neglect this God who made you for himself? Why do you want to neglect this eternal reign in the new heavens and the new earth? Why do you want to live eternally separated from God? Why do you want to go to hell? Where God's presence is not there. Where God's intimacy is not there. Where there is eternal suffering rather than eternal joy. Why do you want to go there? Why do you neglect this great salvation that is there before us? That brings me to the fourth factor from this passage. Because after speaking about it was, not, it was fitting that God for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. Now it ends with this phrase. It says that should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. God decided, the father decided to make the foundation, founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now what does it mean? The fourth factor is that Christ suffered death. He became a human being. He became one among us. He died so that he can become perfect through suffering. If you have read Hebrews, did you ever think about it? Did you ever think about, does it bother you actually? Many people think about, you know, when they want to do personal devotions, what God spoke to me, what is encouraging to me. People, I'm telling you that the biggest problem that so many people when they read the Bible is that intellectual sluggishness that looms over their mind when they read the Bible. That is when they read passages like this, perfect through suffering, does it bother you when you read? How do you see that? Oh, perfect through suffering. Huh. Next. Eleventh one. What is the meaning of perfect through suffering? I don't know, brother. Do you work hard to know what it is? Do you want to understand this passage or do you want to just go through it? People, I'm telling you, please, intellectual laziness is a curse upon you. Be intelligent when you don't understand Try to understand what it is and you can study the study Bible or refer to some articles or commentaries or ask some people rather than lazily reading the Bible which will not help you in your personal devotions. What does it mean? Perfect through suffering. Now the interesting thing is it begins for it was fitting. Now the word fitting is very, very important. Why? Because... God the Father has not only chosen Christ to become human. God the Father has not only chosen death for Christ. But the horrible, horrendous thing is. He chose the means of how Christ should die. Which was absurd, weird, bizarre, awkward to the watching world. And what was that? Crucifixion. Because it was not fitting for the human beings. How can God die a death so horribly on the cross? Because it was a capital worst Roman punishment given to the criminals. And Christ died on the cross as a criminal. Why would God do that? Human reasoning did not understand. But the Bible says that it was fitting. Although it was a humiliation or a scandal to the watching world, God decided this is how Christ should die. And you know, that crucifixion on the cross has become, had become in the first century, one of the greatest stumbling blocks for the people to believe. 
I was telling recently when I went to pastor's conference that these days it is so, uh, you know, very fashionable for people to wear cross. And if you put a cross on the house and it looks very fashionable for us. But if a first century person comes and sees, that will be astounding for him. Are you guys crazy? You know, it is like a people hanging noose around their neck. Noose, you know, the, the round uh, kind of rope that people use to hang people in the gallows. That, that is the capital punishment of India, right? Imagine that if you have gone to Pavan's house and there is a noose hanging there at the entrance of the door, the rope on the wrong one. And you'll be wondering, man, what is this noose? Have you gone crazy? And he will be wearing, you will be thinking that this guy is suicidal. <laughs> Watch over him. He's in depression. He needs counseling. He needs encouragement because he's wearing noose on his house, on his neck, and everywhere it is. This guy has become very suicidal. It doesn't make any sense to us when we think about the cross, but people listen to this. It was like that. If you are laughing, think about how much people were laughing in the first century when they saw the cross. But the Bible says it was fitting. It is God's decision. And that is the reason we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 22 to 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 22 to 25. Now listen what it says. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Why he says foolishness of God? Because they saw crucifixion as the foolish thing that Paul was proclaiming. Why he says the weakness of God? Because they saw cross as the weakest thing that Paul was proclaiming. We need signs and wonders, do miracles. That is very fascinating to us. Talk about philosophy. Talk about something that stimulates our intellectual faculty. What are you talking about? He died on the cross and he paid the price for our sins and he suffered miserably consuming the wrath of God on the cross. Why are you talking? This is nothing but foolishness and weakness. When I went to the pastor's conference, that's what I told them that preach the gospel. Today, we are living in the same generation where people are not interested about the gospel. Don't speak about sin. Don't speak about cross. Don't speak about the gospel. Tell us something that we need. We need prosperity. We need healings. We need signs. We need motivation. We need emotional ecstasy. So what happened to the churches today? They have sold out the gospel, traded the gospel to meet the felt needs of the people. And that is why, you know, prosperity churches are very prosperous. Why? Because they are giving what people want. They don't want the foolishness and the weakness of the gospel. They want something that makes them feel good. But Paul says, I don't care. I don't care. I don't succumb to what people want. I give what is fitting to the Lord. And God decided that it is fitting for the founder of their salvation. When the Bible says the founder, the definite article, the founder, which means salvation is in Jesus' name alone. There is no way, no knowledge, no religion, other faith, but Christ alone, because Christ is the one who has accomplished the work of salvation. Now, what does it mean perfect through suffering? Perfect through suffering. Does it mean that Christ was disobedient and through the cross, the father disciplined him and he became obedient? Is that what it means? I would like to quote what John Piper says here. He explains here that, hear this, understand his argument, which is good. And I believe and I agree with him. Here being made perfect means learning obedience through suffering. This does not mean that he was once disobedient and then became obedient. It means that Jesus moved from untested obedience into suffering and then through suffering into tested and proven obedience. And this proving himself obedient through suffering was his being perfect. If you didn't get some of it, let me explain to you 
What he says over here is, the obedience that Christ had before he faced crucifixion was an untested, unproven obedience. He was obedient. But how do you know? It is like, you know, a husband who loves his wife a lot and lot and lot. And the wife is submissive. Why? Because husband is very loving. Now I honestly, you know, when I look at, you know, when loving husbands are there, wives are very submissive. I think that I don't know how submissive you will be if you get a crooked, distorted husband. It is very easy to submit to a loving husband. And it is very easy to love and love a submissive wife. Oh, my wife is so submissive. I love her so much. But how will your love be and submission be if she is not loving or if she is not submissive and the husbands are not loving? To me, the greater appreciation goes to women whose husbands are not loving, yet they are submissive. Because the submission that a woman shows to the loving husband is not tested. Honestly, it is not tested. And same thing goes to husbands. Husbands who love their wives who are very submissive, their love is not tested. But if they get a wife who shows them stars in the daylight, <laughs> that's where I say that, man, you are really loving. I, there are husbands, actually, I really appreciate them. Super husbands, because their wives are not submissive. And I know there are wives who are super submissive, because husbands are not loving. My appreciation is greater to those men and women than those couples who are very nice because they are getting what they want and they give back because this is what I'm getting. So the point here I'm telling is that Christ's obedience was like that. Okay? It was there. But yes, it was internally there. And it was proven. How obedient do we think Christ is? You can see the cross. It is there his obedience was proven. It is there is submission. You can clearly see. You cannot say that, oh, you are doing signs and wonders. That's the reason maybe you are very obedient. Because God was doing healing. That's the reason you are very obedient. You are doing very nice. You are very nice before that. No, you see the cross. You see the cross where there was agonizing pain. And there you see the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what it means when it says that Christ became obedient. Now, there are two things that we need to understand when the Bible says that he became perfect through suffering, which means that in his humanity, Christ became an unblemished lamb. You know that, right? In the Old Testament, the lamb should be unblemished, spotless. There should not be any spot in that. So Christ became unblemished through his perfect obedience. How do you know he's perfectly obedient? Can you talk about perfect obedience of Christ apart from the cross? It's very difficult. Very, very difficult. I'm talking about proven, tested obedience. You see it under the cross when Christ said, Lord, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. And yet he concludes saying that, yet not my will, but yours be done. He became a perfect, unblemished lamb through his perfect obedience. Now hear this carefully. Because of his perfect obedience on the cross, he became a perfect sacrifice for the sins of people. If Christ's obedience was not perfect, his sacrifice would also not be perfect. So the perfect obedience has qualified him to become a perfect sacrifice for people's salvation. And then you see in verse 11 what he says. He continues saying here in verse 11, which brings me to the fifth point factor is that Christ in his humanity and suffering united God's children and became our elder brother. You know, one of the titles we can use when we worship the Lord Jesus is that, Christ, you are my elder brother. Now, don't always say elder brother, elder brother, elder brother, elder brother, elder brother. That is one problem. If you get onto that, only cling on to one title. Use the several variety, diverse titles that the Bible speaks about when we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the titles is elder brother. Have you anyone ever used when you talk to the Lord Jesus, my Lord Jesus, my elder brother, I come to your throne of grace. How many of you prayed like that? Anytime. You can do that. But don't make it a only thing to pray. 
It says here in verse 11. Shall we all read this? We will go ahead and see that. <clears throat> but it says in verse 11. What does it say? For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. Now what does it mean when it says that he who sanctifies? Who is the one who sanctifies? The Lord Jesus Christ. And who are those who are sanctified? The believers. And what is that one source that Jesus is having and that believers are having? What is that one source? That is very interesting for us to know. You know what is that one source? That one source is the shared humanity. The one source is the shared humanity. We have sinned in our humanity. And Christ has become fully human in order to become our sanctification. Are you understanding what I'm saying? We have sinned in our humanity and Christ had become fully human in order to become our sanctification. The only difference between the humanity of Christ and the humanity of us, you know what is that? That is the inherent depravity. What is inherent depravity? We are born with a sinful nature. Christ was not born with a sinful nature. He was born in flesh and blood. But he didn't have the Arabic nature that we all have since the time we were born. That's the only difference. What we see is that through the first man, Adam, sin came to us. But through the second Adam, Christ, sanctification came to us. And what is the meaning of sanctification here? It means to make us holy. Are you understanding? The Bible tells that Christ died to make us holy. How many people believe in Christ to become holy? Many people believe in Christ to become jolly. And we preach a jolly gospel. Come to Christ and he will give you peace. Come to Christ, he will make your life super comfortable. Come to Christ and you have the jolly of your life. What is that? Bible doesn't say that yes there is peace that comes as a byproduct but the reason why Christ died on the cross is to make sinners holy. Holiness is the goal because the Bible says I am holy God says so you be holy but we could not be holy because of our sin and Christ has come to make us holy by paying the price on the cross. And because of this dear brothers and sisters, because Christ shared in the humanity of us, because Christ has become flesh and blood, you know what the Bible says in verse 11? That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And it continues saying there are three Old Testament passages that we see. That the author of Hebrews is presenting here. One in verse 12 is Psalm 22 verse 22. Psalm 22 verse 22. He says here in verse 12. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praises. He says here that Christ is speaking about. I will reveal you to my brothers. To your chosen ones. I will manifest you. Nobody can know the father except the son. It is a son who reveals the glory of the Father. And then it also says in verse 13, and again, he is quoting Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17. I will put my trust in him. And that is what he did on the cross. He trusted the Father to take care of the work of salvation. And again, Isaiah 8, 18, he cites in verse 13 saying, Behold, I and the children God has given me. So there are three scriptures that he speaks, which speaks about Christ becoming our elder brother and we becoming his brothers because Christ has shared in the humanity. How important it was for Christ to become human in order for us to have this grand privilege. You know what is interesting? When Christ rose from the dead, when the Lord Jesus died on the cross and when he rose from the dead, it was for the first time never he said this. It is only after his death and resurrection we see Christ calling his disciples for the first time brothers. Do you know where do you see? Matthew 28 verse 10. When he rose from the dead, 
Matthew 28 verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, the woman, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. First time Christ calls the disciples brothers. They were qualified to become his brothers because of his death, humanity on the cross. Which is very, very encouraging. Now people, please don't, I know that we are living in a diluted uh, society where the word brother is casually used. Even shopkeeper also say, hey bro, he says to me. Which is very common, bro, bro. But brother in the Bible is a very serious term. It means a familial bond. He is talking about you are my blood-bought child. You are my family member. So when Christ is calling that you are my brothers or you are my sisters, he is telling that you are part of my family, the eternal community. And brother also speaks about sacrificial life. Brothers sacrifice for the welfare of the brothers. So there is this familial bond and also this sacrificial help when the Bible says. Now interestingly, this is what we need to understand. You know why? Because he says that he was not ashamed to call what? Brothers. Why the word ashamed? Why the word ashamed? If, uh, you know, Sai was a brother of mine. He was already, he's already a brother in Christ. But if he was my biological brother, and if, I was, if he was Jeff Bezos, who owns the whole Amazon company, what will I do? What will I do? I feel... Proud of him. Hey, do you know Sai? He is Amazon's founder, CEO. Right? You will be very proud of him. And you will be bragging about him. But if he was Vijay Malia, <laughs> who dumped the banks of India, and he is known as a scammer, deceiver, fraud. Everyone knows Vijay Malia was a flirt and a fraud. Would I be gladly stand and say that, you know, Vijay Malia? <laughs> or if somebody comes and says, hey, Ajay comes and says, you are Vijay Malia's brother, right? Who is Vijay Malia? <laughs> I heard him for the first time. Why? You are ashamed. Why? Because of his criminal background. People, do you think that? What should Christ feel of us when we know that we are sinners? We are sinners. We are disobedient people. We are wicked people. We are wretched people. Should we be proud of us in order to say that, Stephen, you are my brother? It's a shameful thing. But because of his death on the cross, because of his shared humanity, because he has bought me by the blood, now he can say that, Stephen, you are my brother, and I'm not ashamed for that. Now, we should be thinking about, Lord, who am I? You are the majesty one. You are the holy one. You are the great and the almighty God. Who am I? A sinner, wretched, disobedient person that you look at me and call me brother. Don't take the words lightly, people. When the Bible says that he was not ashamed to call us brothers because we are not worthy of it. We are worthy of eternal condemnation. The creator, the heir, the majesty, the maker... You know, sometimes we need to, we should ask God, Lord, show me who you are. Because when you say, I'm your child, when you say, I am your brother or sister, I want to know you, Lord. Because as Paul says that, I'm praying that your eyes be enlightened so that you may know God. Because when you know who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, you would not be looking for cheap entitlements and attention and glory in this world. I'm not getting attention. I'm not getting love. I'm not getting this. These are all cheap things actually. Do you know who you are? You are a child of God. Is there a greater privilege than this? You are the son of God. You are the daughter of God. Is there a greater privilege than this? That you have to look for cheap attention of the fragile, fading people. Today they are something. Tomorrow they are something else. Look at the grand privilege that God has given you. That is not ashamed to call you brothers. And as I go to the next one, I want to mention what Martin Ralph Dehan, one of the great Bible teachers of a few decades ago, and Daily Bread, you will see a lot of his articles. 
Listen to what he says. When Christ is not ashamed to call you brothers. <clears throat> how many of us are ashamed of him? Listen how he challenges us. He endured the cross. And despite the shame. He now calls us brethren. And can it be that we. Lifted from the mire. And slime of sin. Should be ashamed of him. Altogether lovely one. How inconsistent for anyone washed in the blood to be ashamed of his name. How ungrateful to be anything less than our best for him. How awful to withhold anything of all we are and have from him. It seems to me that once we realize that what he did for us, we would never be satisfied until everything was on the altar for him. When he is not ashamed to call us brothers, why are we ashamed to tell about him? Why are we ashamed to give up everything for him? Why are we ashamed to suffer for him when he did not feel ashamed of us? The sixth factor that I want you to understand, which is also very encouraging for us to ponder upon, that Christ suffered deaths to destroy the devil and the fear of death. Christ suffered deaths to destroy the devil and the fear of death. Shall we all read this together? Hebrews chapter 2 from verses 14 to 15. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. Let's all raise our voices. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You know, it begins saying here that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. It speaks about the humanity. Since man is a human, woman is a human. The Bible tells because we are human, we have to inevitably face death. Because we are human and we inevitably face death, he himself partook of the same things. His flesh was no different from yours. His blood was no different from yours. The Bible says that he shared the same humanity. You know, in the early century, there was one of the heresies which was telling that Christ appeared to be like a human, but he was not exactly the human. Because they believe that flesh is evil. The body is evil. So how come Christ take flesh upon himself and become evil? So he was only appearing as, he, as a human being, but he was not. But this scripture counters saying that he partook of the same things. Ditto. He was exactly like a human being. No less than that. And why? The Bible tells that he had to become a human in order to die. Will any person be born to die? Any person. First of all, he doesn't know that he's being born. And even if he's born, you ask a person, would you like to die? Would you say that? Oh, I'm waiting for that. <laughs> the only time they wait for death is what? When they are hopeless. No one wants to die. But Jesus knowingly, he became a human knowingly that he had to die. He was born with an end in mind. And that is... That you had to die. Why should he die? There is a reason for that. The scripture here says that to deliver us from two things. And to deal with two things. That through death. Now imagine and, and not imagine. Uh, remember people when the Bible says through death. It means it was not a normal death. That we people generally go through. It means that through his suffering of death. Whenever you see the Bible speaks about the death of Christ. Don't think about normally dying as a human. No, he suffered, went through excruciating pain on the cross for a very special reason. Why? That he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He died to destroy the devil. You know, there are people who believe in ransom theory. That is, he died on the cross... So that he can pay the price to the devil and say that, hey devil, I paid the price for Stephen, so release him. It's a ransom theory, which some of the good Bible teachers in the early centuries believed. 
But that is not what the scripture says. It doesn't say that he died to pay the price to the devil. It says that he died so that he can destroy the devil. Because he has the power of death. Now, shouldn't this trouble you when you read this passage? Some are wondering, why should I be troubled? <laughs> I'm so happy. Wake up, people. Wake up. Is the devil having power to kill people? Because it says that to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So when people die, who is killing them? Who is killing them? The devil. And Christ came to destroy the devil. How many of us are, are bold to face the devil? How many of us are afraid to face the devil? <laughs> In fact, we train children from the beginning, right? When we, when we feed them, when we nurture them, we train from the beginning that you should fear devil. Okay, eat, eat. See what is coming? Bayam. Devil, demon. Oh, what a great uh, parenting it is. Christians, instead of telling Christ died to destroy the devil, you are raising them up fearing the devil. Well, how many of you think that if the devil comes here, you would be very glad to look at him? How many of you? No, you made a mistake. No way I can look at him. People, we can. You know why? Because Christ destroyed the devil. Christ destroyed the devil. But we should be very careful when the scripture says here, he destroyed the one who has the power of death. Why? Because the Bible clearly tells God alone has the keys of life and death. We see in Deuteronomy 32, 39, and even Job 1, 21, it says that he is the one who kills. He is the one who gives life. Death and life are in the hands of God. So what does it mean when the Bible says that he came to destroy the one who has the power of death? Now that should be seen in connection also with the latter part B of this verse. When it says that to deliver them from the fear of death. Now hear this. What does Romans 3.23 says? Romans 3.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Right? It is... Uh, uh, we, we, we face the hopeless death physically and then, into, and then get into eternal death. 1 Corinthians 5.56 says that the sting of death is sin. What does it mean? Same thing in connection with what Romans 3.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And 1 Corinthians 15.56 says that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. That is sin is what? Disobeying the law. If there is no law, there is no sin. If there is sin, there is death. That is the argument that he makes. And then 1 John chapter 3 verse 8 says, you see the unity of the Bible people. You, know, you, need, to, you need to get into the unity of the Bible, the glory and the beauty of how scripture complements one another in order for us to understand the Bible. That is the reason we say the principle, scripture interprets scripture. 1 John 3 8 says that, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the... Now you see here, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now hear this people. Why did the devil sin from the beginning? Why is he causing people to commit sin? Why? Because he knows that the sting of death is sin. The wages of sin is death. So he causes people to sin so that they can die, not just physically, but most importantly, they would go into hopeless eternity. So, what do we understand by all the scriptures? By causing people to sin and leading them into hopeless eternity, the devil holds the power of death. The devil holds the power of death. Who will be glad to die? Why are they now glad to die? Why people are not glad to die? Why? Because they fear. They fear what would happen next. They fear where are they getting into. They fear of losing everything. Why? Because they have a limited understanding of what Christ has done on the cross. So what we need to understand when the Bible says about, again we need to apply the theological principle, the concept, already and not yet. 
What has already been done on the cross is that devil has been deprived of his power. He has no power over the children of God at present. But not yet has to come. And what is that? He will suffer eternal damnation in hell. That is about to come when Christ is coming. And he will be put into eternal abyss of fire. Where he will be suffering worse than any other person. Now here is a clarification that I would like to give you. That They think that, uh, many Christians think that hell is where the devil is a warden. And he will take people to hell and causes them to suffer. They all watch these movies and they are polluted with that understanding. No, devil himself suffers there. Demons themselves suffer there. And you, if you are not a believer, you along with them will suffer. And if you are a believer, you would never face that. Why? Because Christ died to destroy the devil's work. And then it says here that, you know, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, people, I'm telling you this. If you want to know what a theology of the person is, if you want to know how much he believes in the claims of Christianity, you should see them when they're about to die. Honestly. It is very easy to sit here, listen to sermons. Very easy to do your quiet times and say, oh, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Very easy to really make many claims. Your true faith in what Christ has done on the cross, your true hope of eternal life is seen when you know you are dying. And that's the reason the Bible says that he came, he died to deliver those who through fear of death, people, the fear of death, out of all the fears, we have many fears, right? A lot of fear, fear of losing job, fear of getting sick, fear of being hurt by people, so many fears. There is none greater than the fear of death. There is none greater than the fear of death. That's the worst fear that a human being can face and they're paralyzed when they hear about it. And the Bible says that Christ died so that you need not fear death. Now hear this carefully. The Bible doesn't say Christ died for you not to experience death. It doesn't say here. We all have to face death physically. No one will escape. All have to die. But he died so that you and I would be free from the fear of death. People, if you are afraid of death, you must really examine yourself whether you really, genuinely believe what the gospel speaks about. Who knows, someone may, don't see me as a prophet, I'm not a prophet at all. Someone may get a cancer and the report says that you would not live more than one month. What would you do? What would you do? Would you say that, hallelujah, the time of glory has come for me to enter? Or will he be shivering, trembling, you know, what is going to happen? That is the reason the Bible says that he has come to free you from the slavery, the fear of death. You know, there was a, a French uh, infidel, atheist who lived in the 18th century. And he was, he was a man full of animosity, hatred towards Christians in the Bible. In fact, in, 19, in 1764, this is what he wrote. His name is Voltaire. You know what he wrote? The Bible? You speak of the Bible? That is what fools have written. Fools wrote the Bible. The imbeciles come in. Stupid people appreciate it. So I'm a stupid. You are all stupid here, according to him. What rogues teach? My goodness, he calls me rogue. Cyril, me, Shankar. He says that we are rogues. And young children are made to learn by heart. And this is a hatred he had against the Bible, against Christians. But you know, when he died in 1778, he said to his doctor, I will give you half of what I am worth, because he was worth millions at the time. He wrote, great writer, and he said that I will give you half of what I worth if you give me six months to live. Say six months you give me, and I will give you half of what I am worth. He was so desperate to live. And the doctor said that, that they felt sorry that he could not even live for six weeks. And the doctor and the nurses testified the way he died in hopeless, hopeless, hopeless condition was indescribable. He was so conquered by the fear of death that he is about to die. 
And I'm telling you, many people, he's a real atheist. Real atheist. There are practical atheists, you know. <laughs> and they are found among Christians. Practical atheists are among Christians. That is, when they die, they die as if they are getting into hopeless eternity. When they die as if they are going to hell. When they die, they are as if there is no life after that. You see here, here is a real Christian. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he died in 1981. A couple of days before his death, Martin Lloyd-Jones slept, who slept in 1981. He wrote in a scrap paper for his family and he told that, you know what he told? A prayer request that, I have, that you would never be hearing, I think. You know what he requested his family? Do not pray for healing. Do not hold me back from the glory. Anyone? Please don't pray for my healing. I'm going to glory. Why are you stopping me? Pray that I would die soon. How many can pray? <laughs> oh, that fasting prayer. 40 days fasting prayer. Please pray. Please pray. Oh, I don't want to die. I don't want to get into glory. Please, have, please, please pray that God would heal me and restore me. And if he doesn't do that, where is God? Where is healing? Where is power? Or maybe we should sneak out slowly to Shamkishore so that this, this guy will do something because Ecclesia is waste. They don't believe in healing and miracles and power. There is no glory happening there. And then if you go, something may happen. And one day, Sunday, nobody knows where you have gone. And you have gone there. And he prayed for you. Nothing happened. And again, you are back to EF. Some people do that, you know. They go sneak out slowly to some of these things, hoping maybe something will happen. You don't have to, people. Even I am speaking like this. I need to see myself, actually. So boldly, so nicely speaking. I, need, I want to see myself out my face when I die. When I die. And you will be my witness. Hey, Stephen, do you remember <laughs> what happened to you? <laughs> you spoke so boldly, nicely, shouted at us and challenged us. And you were at the top of your voice. Not with all glory for me. What happened? Gloom has fallen on your face. Darkness is surrounded. This is what, where our real theology will come out, people. This is where our real theology will come out. Rise up. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 55 says, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It says, can you harm me, death? You have no power over me. You cannot take me away from my God and the eternal glory. You don't have to fear. That's what the word of God says here. 2 Timothy 1.10 says, And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. People, death has been abolished. Now we may think about then what I have to face. I want to close with what Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was a, one of the great pastors of a historic church, 10th Presbyterian Church. And uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse was a solid expository preacher. I think he taught the book of Romans for 12 years. Solid expository preacher. One day his wife died. And they were all going in the hearse, in the van that takes them to funeral. And uh, the body was there, the children were there, and they were all crying, and they were asking questions. You know, it's very difficult when you face the reality of death, handling the questions of children. When Jesus died on the cross, why should we have to face deaths? And as he was traveling, as the van was going, he saw a truck coming on the opposite side, and suddenly the Spirit of God enlightened him. And as he was passing the truck, adjacent on the opposite road, you know, as a truck, huge truck was passing by. And uh, as this vehicle was also traveling and passing by that huge truck, he asked the children, do you see the truck that is approaching us? And they said, yes. And he asked that, when you pass through the truck, would you be run over, struck by the truck, or will you pass over by the shadow of the truck? And the children shared, only the shadow, not the truck. And he said that 2,000 years ago, on the cross, the truck of God's wrath has went over the Lord Jesus Christ so that you and I today would only go through the shadow of death. And what we face here physically is only the shadow. But we have the eternal glory waiting for us. And it is to bring us to this glory 
that Christ died on the cross. Shall we all rise up and pray? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the humanity of Christ. How many times we only think about the deity of Christ, but how much humanity of Christ is essential because he partook in the same blood and flesh and because of his deaths his obedience was proven because of his deaths he brought us into glory and because of his death he destroyed the devil who holds the power of deaths and because of his death he delivered us from slavery lifelong slavery which is fear of deaths we need not fear a lot that's like the unbelievers. Concerns may be there, but we don't have to panic hopelessly because we have the hope of eternal life. We thank you, Lord, for what Christ has done for us on the cross. How can we ever lose our sight of the gospel? How can we ever turn away from this cross? How can we ever bypass this cross when our whole life is spent at the foot of the cross because of his deaths? We have all this glorious inheritance that we look into the scripture which has already begun and yet to be fully fulfilled and we are waiting for that full consummation of eternal fellowship with our maker who made us for himself. Oh Lord, you convict us. You Enlighten our minds to know that we are made for you, not for any other thing. Life will be different, O oh Lord, if we live by this one purpose of life. So many things we cannot live because we all think about now and here about ourselves without thinking about the purpose of life. Oh, we thank you for the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Help us to ponder over it and help us to live a real Christian life, not a theoretical Christian life which only professes and pays lip service and makes claims. But when we see the reality of suffering, when we see the reality of deaths, when we face the reality of afflictions, we cringe, we panic, we live a life as if you do not exist. As if we are the masters, as if we are in control of the things. Lord, you please to... Bring out, bring us out from this puny perspective which is polluted with worldliness. Please to teach us a lot to show us how glorious you are and what you made us in you. Oh Jesus, our elder brother, we thank you that you have called us your brothers and you are not ashamed of us to call that we are your brothers and we are your sisters and we are your family. Thank you so much. For all these glorious privileges, all because of Christ's humanity and death. We give you glory, honor, and praise. Amen. Thank you for listening to the message. We believe you have been greatly encouraged in your heart. Stephen David also writes articles that are relevant to today's generation. You may read them on his blog www.messageforourage.blogspot.com I repeat www.messageforourage.blogspot.com You may also email him at cstephendavid at gmail.com I repeat c-s-t-e-p-h-e-n-d-a-v-i-d at gmail.com Grace and peace be to you.